Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We are so excited that you're joining us today. Absolutely. And we have some awesome fans that we have to shout out because they've been commenting all over our social media. Beverly and Susan, thanks for all your comments on our Facebook. And we'd also like to shout out Ivy on our Instagram. We really appreciate everybody who comments, shares our posts, and just interacts with us in any way possible. So thank you. We appreciate it. Yeah. Keep those comments coming. Also, before we start, I wanted to give a little update on one of the cases that I covered. A while back, I covered a monster named Michelle Notek, or she went by Shelly. Recently, just in June, she was up for parole. I mentioned that when I covered her case. Oh, no. She wasn't let out, was she? Thankfully, no. Her parole was denied. But that just means that in another couple of years, she'll be eligible again. Those poor people. Mm Mm-hmm. I think we've got enough updates now that we could probably do a whole episode on just updating everybody on where all of the murders that we've covered are and what they're doing now. Absolutely. I feel like we need a status update soon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that might be something we'll work on for in the future here. But I just thought some of you might be interested because I did speak about her being eligible for parole this year. And thankfully, no, because I'm always worried when I'm talking about a killer or a serial killer and we talk about their parole because you just never know. Sometimes they do get out. (laughs) We've been calling them dirtbags. Is that what you're worried about, Christy? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Who who called who a (laughs) dirtbag? It wasn't me. It wasn't me. (laughs) That was all Melissa. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) But it has been a busy couple of months for most of the murders that we've been covering because a lot of them have come up for parole this summer. Yeah, it seems that way. Mm -hmm. So we'll do some digging and have to give you some more updates. And just life in general is busy right now. It is. Today actually is the earliest Melissa and I have ever gotten together to record (laughs) because we have so much on our plates and so much to do. And I'm not really a morning person. I'm the night owl. Melissa's the morning person. (laughs) We'll see how this goes. And it's too early even for some Pepsi for me. So we'll see how we do. But these last couple of weeks, I've been busy preparing recipes and getting ready for back to school because I hate the slog that it is. It just gets so crazy at the beginning of September. And so I've been looking through all of my grandmother's old cookbooks for recipe ideas. And my kids get a kick out of going through them with me because we have one of my great grandmother's cookbooks from the 1800s. And it is hilarious to read. No way. 1800s? Yeah. With all of her little notes in the sides of the margins. Oh, is it like grind your wheat (laughs) yes really (laughs) yes it's awesome it's like put a slab of lard (laughs) (laughs) that is a keepsake that's amazing it's wicked but grandmas always have the best recipes right that is true because they cook with their hearts that's right and they don't mind putting that slab of lard on there (laughs) nope heart healthy what's that (laughs) my grandma is an awesome cook the tricky part is getting her to tell you about the recipes 
Because she cooks from the heart? Yeah. Yeah. She's always like, oh, just throw in this and that. She never tells you any specific amounts. And sometimes she's even sketchy on the ingredients. Like she'll tell you, oh, you just use cheese. And I'm like, uh, what kind of cheese? And she's like, I don't know, whatever you got in the fridge. I'm like, there's a lot of difference between cheeses, grandma. <laughs> That's actually how I cook. <laughs> I'm by the recipe when I bake, but when I cook, it's just, if someone asks me for a recipe, I'm like, yeah, you put carrot, onion, how much? Well, you just put carrot and onion, like whatever you have. (laughs) Not me. I'm the scientist. I am exact amounts. (laughs) I've been trying to replicate her broccoli casserole recipe for years with little success. I've even like tried to sneak up on her like and watch her make it and it never works. I can never replicate it. She won't show you how to do it? Oh, well, she'll show me how to do it, but she like preps everything ahead of time. So I don't know, like she's like, oh, and then I just put in the cheese and I put in this, but it's already done in like little bowls. Oh, oh man, so (laughs) tricky. You'll get it one day. She is the sweetest and a wonderful cook, but she doesn't share her recipes very easily. I guess not all cooks do. It's true. But the dirtbag that we'll talk about today was famous for her home-cooked meals, and she wasn't shy about sharing her recipes. She actually published a cookbook after being incarcerated. What? Mm Mm-hmm. It has about 60 recipes in it, and I would be lying if I didn't say I secretly wanted to get it just to try out the recipes, because she sounded like she was like this amazing cook. Like, hmm, let's eat what a serial killer eats. (laughs) (laughs) How did she lure in all of her victims? (laughs) She fed people. Does she feed people people? No, she doesn't feed people Okay, people. good. <laughs> this isn't a Robert Picton case. Okay, good. But this grandmotherly woman was so famous for her cooking. And besides being a good cook, what are some other idealistic traits of a sweet old granny? Grandmas are just warm and loving. They're understanding. They're accepting. They just want to take care of you. Yeah. They're helpful. They're charitable. They're caring. They're good storytellers. Mm-hmm. On the outside... All of these things were true about Dorothea Puente. We're doing Dorothea? Yes. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Listeners, buckle up. (laughs) You are in for a ride. I knew you would know this case. So I have done some really deep digging to see if I could surprise you. Oh, I'm sure you will. You told me you read a lot of books for this case. How many did you actually read? I read three. Three books for this one case? Yep. This one's been a long time coming. Wow. So this is the case that you were telling me that you've been working forever Mm -hmm. on. Yep. (laughs) Well, here we are. The day has come. Dorothea Helen Puente was this sweet old granny of a woman. She contributed to various charitable organizations and she cared for the underprivileged like she would care for her own children and was always telling stories. But she was anything but a sweet, innocent, elderly lady. Dun, dun, dun. Dun. She was a wolf in granny's clothing. Oh, that is a good description of her. I thought it was perfect. Her storytelling is legendary. Being a pathological liar, Dorothea was equipped with a full repertoire of stories. She weaved lies and murder into ambition and greed and preyed upon the vulnerable. Have I painted you a good picture yet? Oh yeah, she is totally a manipulator. Uh Uh-huh. But let's go back to the very beginning, and I'm curious if you think she ever had a chance of becoming anything but a dirtbag. All right. Do you know a lot about her history? A little bit. Probably not as much as you've researched, though. But I always say master manipulators could be top-notch salespeople. Oh, absolutely. She could sell anybody on anything. She could probably sell you the jacket you're wearing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So Dorothea Helen Gray was born in Redlands, California on the 9th of January, 1929. She was the fifth of five or the sixth of seven children. There are differing reports. I could for sure find the birth records of four older siblings, 
but most of the reports say she was the sixth out of seventh children. Either way, it was not a great big happy family. Her father, Jesse James Gray, was born in Missouri in 1894 and met and married Dorothea's mother, Trudy Mae Yates, from Oklahoma in February 1918. Wow. Less than three weeks later, Jesse entered the Army as an engineer. And one month after that, their first child was born. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So that was a shotgun wedding. Yep. <laughs> Which would have been really frowned upon in that time. Yeah, and I think it will give some insight into her mothering relationship a little bit later on. It wasn't something that Trudy entered into probably willingly. Oh, okay. It was a necessary thing that she had to do. Because it was the right thing to do, and this is now your responsibility. That's right. Not necessarily the things that she wanted to do. So she didn't want to be a mom, necessarily. Not at all. That's never a good start to a story. No. And unfortunately, that didn't stop them from having kids. Well, they probably didn't have the birth control that we have available to us nowadays. Nope. While away fighting on the front lines, Jesse was a part of a mustard gas attack, and he returned home with irreparable damage to his lungs and shell shock and was not the same man coming home. When Jesse wasn't fighting the pain to breathe through his damaged lungs, he was fighting demons that made him want to commit suicide. He attempted suicide several times, usually in front of his children, who would beg and plead for him to lower the gun from his head or climb down from the local water tower. How traumatic for those kids. Mm -hmm. That is so sad. I can't imagine what that kind of environment would be like. Well, and the men that served in that war, it wasn't acceptable to talk about your mental health or to get help for that. No, not at all. I can't even imagine how the whole family would deal with that. It's barely acceptable for men to talk about their feelings now. Let alone back in the 1920s. Yeah. His bitterness and depression made him an angry and cruel man that turned to alcohol to drown his hate for the world and beat his family to make himself feel more powerful and in control. Just prior to Dorothea's birth, the family moved to Redlands, California in San Bernardino County, being drawn there for work, but it didn't work out as they planned. The life for the growing family didn't get much better in California. Jesse's health and drinking made it difficult for him to hold down a good job. The financial difficulties just made the drinking and abuse worse. Trudy, who had never taken to motherhood, took to drinking excessively and took out her frustrations on her children whenever they got in her way. She would do whatever she could to just make their life miserable. That is terrible. So those kids must have always been on edge. Mm -hmm. This was the environment that Dorothea was brought into. Because Trudy had never stopped drinking throughout her pregnancy, Dorothea was born small and would have a small stature for the rest of her life. Trudy continued to drink while she was breastfeeding as well, and there are reports that Dorothea was an infant that spent most of her time excessively lethargic and left uncared for, sitting in filth for hours at a time. Oh my goodness. So was she drunk from the breast milk? Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. That is so sad. And it makes you wonder, did she ever even have a chance to make good decisions? Because this is how her brain is forming. Right. And does she have some type of fetal alcohol syndrome? There could be deficiencies going on that were never even diagnosed. Oh, absolutely. Because it's not like she was living in a family that would seek out care. Or even probably notice that she needed that care. No, it just wasn't even talked about at that time. No. But that's how Trudy dealt with it. She just drank and look at this, miraculously, the baby slept all the time. Wow, that's terrible. To make the situation even worse, 
Nine months after her birth, the Great Depression hit, the most severe economic depression that the Western world has seen, even today. And those in the Midwest part of the U.S. struggled worse than most because of severe droughts. The legendary droughts in the Midwest were referred to as the Dust Bowl, and it forced even more workers and competition into California, making work even more difficult to come by for Jesse and Trudy. Instead of picking and creating oranges, he was forced to work in the tobacco fields for significantly less money. Oh, man. So now he has this huge family and is making even less money than before. Trudy turned to the sex trade to help out their finances and spent even more time drinking and neglecting her children. At times, the younger children would be locked away in a closet while Trudy left the house. That is so terrible. I can't even imagine what those kids went through. It gets worse. When she would return, she would preach to her children how it was important for them to be kind to alcoholics. At the same time, she was making her children clean up her vomit after her own alcoholic binges. Oh. So she would lock them in a closet and then only let them out to clean up her vomit. Those poor kids. And that's probably why she's saying, yeah, you need to be kind to alcoholics. Yeah, because she is an alcoholic. Yeah. But their neglect from their mother was preferable to the attention they received from Jesse. He beat the children mercilessly and was particularly hard on the girls, just smacking them for nothing. If he could reach them, he would smack them. Really? I wonder why he targeted the girls. Was he resentful that their mom was a sex trade worker? That's possible, but it sounds like he was on board because she was bringing in money from it. Right, but he still might have felt demasculinized. It's true, yeah. Yeah, it might have been a blow to his ego because his wife is having sex with other men and then maybe is projecting that onto his daughters. I could totally see that. Mm -hmm. When old enough to toddle after her siblings, Dorothea would be pushed out into the street to spend their days wandering among strangers, scavenging and begging for food. Hmm. Because she was the smallest and an exceptionally cute toddler, her siblings used her as bait to encourage others to be compassionate towards them and give them food. If they chose the wrong mark and faced the wrath of any grumpy, vicious strangers, Dorothea was the youngest and the slowest and would always be the one that was caught and take a beating for the begging. Oh my goodness. People would beat kids for begging? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, get out of here, you little rat, and smack them. That's sad. Mm Mm-hmm. But smart of the kids to know to use her. Like, yeah, you got to use the youngest, cutest one. Well, it's just a survival technique, right? Oh, it would be. And they're surviving just the same as she's trying to survive, just Mm -hmm. the same as her parents are trying to survive. By the age of four, Dorothea was forced, along with her siblings, to help support the family by picking crops for local farmers. During the days, the children would work in the sweltering heat, and at nights, they would be forced out into the streets. Dorothea was sexually assaulted on more than one occasion. Oh, Sadly, she just thought this was the way girls were treated. She was frequently exposed to her parents' sexual relationship in their one-room house, and it was not a healthy one. So this was just her norm. So her parents would have sex out in front of the children all the time, and it was vicious and violent, and on more than one occasion, it was rape. Can you imagine? Most parents are fearful that your kids are going to walk in accidentally let alone doing it right in front of your children no her alcoholic parents had no thought to actually hiding behind anything well it's kind of like the kids were just accessories they weren't really looking out for the kids they weren't taking care of the kids the kids were just there yeah and a nuisance that's exactly how they treated them wow eventually an aunt raised concerns about the living conditions that the children were in and the children were taken away and placed with different relatives 
When asked by a social worker who she would like to live with, Dorothea said, I want to live with daddy. And if I can't live with him, I want to live with my sister. I don't want to live with mama. I can tell when mom drinks because she gets so mean I can smell it. Oh, she would have been pretty young at this time. Yeah, this is between ages like five and seven. How terrible. It's almost unfathomable to think that this is how some kids have to be brought up. This was just her life. Yeah. And I am always amazed at, you think that these situations are so horrible for these children, but when you actually ask a child, they want to most of the time return to their parents. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, because it's the only attachment that they have. It's always shocking to me and so hard to understand that that attachment even exists because it's so negative. Yeah, it's totally toxic, but the kids love their parents still through all of that. Mm -hmm. At the age of eight, Dorothy and her siblings would return to live with their parents. By this time, Jesse's health had failed considerably, and his lung condition had worsened quite dramatically. Dorothea was left to solely care for her father for the next month until he passed away in 1937. Aww. So at eight years old, she became the sole care provider for him, because everybody else was out working and Trudy was off drinking and turning tricks. That would be really traumatic. Even as an adult child, that would be very challenging. I couldn't imagine doing it at the age of eight. No. It was only after her father died that the family learned that he had had tuberculosis. Oh. And once that was identified, the whole family was put into quarantine. During this time, members of the local church community took pity on them and provided them with food and clothing because they weren't allowed to leave. And at this time, Dorothea learned a valuable life lesson about gaining sympathies from this experience. Oh, this is where the manipulation starts. Yeah. Less than a year after losing their father, Trudy, while on a binge with a client, was in a motorcycle accident and died. Oh my goodness. The children learned of their mother's death when they were dropped off at the funeral. What? Mm -hmm. Even though Trudy wasn't a stellar mom, she was their mom. And I can't imagine what a blow it would be to just be dropped off at the funeral without even so much as a heads up that, hey, your mom has died. That is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. But the local community was just kind of taking care of them. They found out that their mom had died, and so they wanted them to attend her funeral, which well, wasn't a huge funeral. Yeah, but why wouldn't they tell them? I don't know. That's how Dorothea recollects it, is that nobody even gave her a heads up. She oh, just okay. got there, and this was mom's funeral. But it could be the time, right? People mm -hmm. didn't really talk to kids. Or recognize that they needed to be told at all. Right. They were just doing the proper thing and bringing the children to the funeral. That's wild. It would take the authorities two years to notify Trudy's next of kin. And during that time, the children were once more split up and sent to live in foster homes. And during this time, Dorothea experienced even more abuse. Oh. Their aunt would reunite and adopt them all. And Dorothea, for the first time, would attend school and start to flourish under her aunt's care. Unfortunately, the state felt that her aunt was caring for too many children and returned the children to the foster care system. What? Mm-hmm. That makes zero sense. If she's actually taking care of them and they're going to school and they're thriving and they're doing okay, you don't fix it if it isn't broken. No, but there was a law at the time that said you could only be caring for X amount of children. Wow. And now it's the opposite. Yeah. The foster care system is so overrun. That if there's a family member who will take care of these children, they gladly welcome it, even if it is a whole sibling group. 
Isn't that crazy? That is really. But back at that time, there was no recognition of bouncing around different foster homes was detrimental to a child's health at all. Even more so than being crammed in a bedroom with five other children. Yeah. So unfortunate. Mm Mm-hmm. Dorothea would bounce around different homes and sadly was sexually assaulted on a number of occasions. Ugh. What a bunch of dirtbags. Mm-hmm. As a way to cope with all the trauma and upheaval in her life, Dorothea began to tell stories. And as she got older, these stories would get more and more elaborate. Her stories would become so elaborate and be repeated so many times that it's really questionable if Dorothea would actually believe these stories herself. Her favorite story to tell was that she had grown up in Mexico with 18 brothers and sisters. And she would even learn Spanish to support this lie and try to blend in with the Spanish community. Wow, she was invested in that one. Mm -hmm. She idealized the Mexican community because of their close family ties and genuine care that she felt she saw between them. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Wrapped up in her stories and her beauty growing, as a teenager, she developed a rebellious streak and resented any restrictions that foster homes or her older siblings tried to place on her. Remember that she had been roaming the streets since she was a toddler, and now she had strangers trying to tell her what she could and couldn't do. And it did not go over well. Yeah, I could see how that wouldn't fly. Mm -hmm. She was done with foster parents and older siblings telling her what to do. She felt she could take care of herself. So at the age of 16, Dorothea would run away to Olympia, Washington in 1945 and start calling herself Sheriel A. Richelli, the first in a very long list of aliases that she would use throughout her life. As Sheriel, she tried working at an ice cream shop. And when that didn't work, she started working as a sex trade worker. Oh, that's a big jump. Mm-hmm. But it's what she was taught. It was what she knew. Mm-hmm. Because of her looks, she was popular and she made good money at it. With money for the first time in her life, she started to develop a taste for the finer things in life. Dorothea would marry four times during her lifetime. Her first husband was one of her tricks that would pay her extra to sit and listen to her stories. Wow, so she was a really good storyteller. Mm -hmm. 22-year-old Fred McFall thought Dorothea's stories were endearing. He proposed and they were married in Reno. Being the compulsive liar that she had learned to be, on her marriage certificate, she lied. She didn't use her real name, and she put down that her age was 30, almost twice her actual age. Wow. Most people are trying to make yourself appear younger. But I do get it for this one because she wouldn't have been able to get married without parental consent. Right. And she probably was lying to him about how old she was. She was. Wow. Why would she go so much older than him? I don't know. She just really enjoys being that older, more mature woman. And that's a trait that she continues throughout her life. That is unusual. Mm -hmm. Usually you go the other way, right? Yeah. I mean, I can see her line to be able to be with this guy who's a little bit older. Mm -hmm. But you could even say you were 20 or 21, I guess. Yeah, she doubled it. Yeah, 30 seems a jump. Mm -hmm. Dorothea's stories continued and would become wild and extravagant. She told strangers at their wedding multiple different stories. And Fred would have to go around behind her and be like, oh, no, she's just joking. (laughs) So he found it totally endearing. Yeah. He loved it. He thought she was like this great actress. <laughs> it's like, this lady's the cat's meow. That's right. <laughs> she would go around telling strangers that she was a model or a princess or an army nurse. Then that's where she had met Fred in the Philippines. But Fred thought all of these stories were fascinating and that his wife was this like awesome actress. Wow. Now, why couldn't it just end right here? They got married and lived happily ever after. 
because that's not Dorothea's story. It's not. No. She would get bored of it. That's right. Unfortunately, Fred's love for her stories was not enough for Dorothea. She did not take to domestic life, which isn't a big surprise, considering she never had much of a domestic life growing up. She hated cleaning the house, seeing little point in it. She had never been taught the value of it. And for her, marriage was suffocating. And Fred suspected very soon after their marriage that she returned to the sex trade. Yikes. It's funny, though, because he married her knowing that that's what she does as a profession. And now that they're married, he doesn't want her to do it. Yeah. Again, I think it goes back to that kind of ownership thing, right? Yeah. Like, I'm the man. Now you're mine. Yeah, I'll take care of you. Yeah. A year into their marriage, Dorothea gave birth to their first daughter. And like her own mother, she had trouble bonding with the baby. She was neglectful. And within three months, she dumped the baby on Fred's mother. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, she probably was doing that baby a service. Yep. She started drinking hard liquor to drown away her pain and her boredom. When she gave birth to their second daughter a year later, she didn't even bother to tell Fred that she was in labor. Nor did she even consult him when she gave the baby up for adoption before leaving the hospital. Wow. Like, that's really sad for Fred. But I wish we could see this more often with people like Dorothea rather than becoming a child abuser. Yeah, you wonder which one is the more dirtbag move. Was it Trudy that just kept her children and neglected them throughout her life? Or was it Dorothea because she just knew that she wasn't cut out for motherhood, so she just gave her kids away? I would say Trudy would be the bigger dirtbag because why put your kids through that? At least give them the chance to have a normal, happy life than being neglectful and making them clean up your vomit because you've been on a bender. Yeah, that's what Dorothea chose to do. She just got rid of her kids. Yeah, so it's shocking for us because the majority of people would not do that. But I do feel like that was the right thing for her to do, knowing now what we know about her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a blessing in disguise. She would have never been able to form any attachments. And she was taught that you can have violent sex in front of your kids and you can smack them around and you don't have to worry about feeding them or taking care of their needs. That's right. You just let them out on the street. Yeah. Unfortunately for Fred, this was devastating. But he still tried to make things work until 1948 when Dorothea came home after a binge in Los Angeles pregnant. Having another man's baby was the final straw for Fred. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine being poor Fred through all this. Nope. He had put up with her poor housekeeping skills and her drinking and even her sending away their children. He could even deal with the binges and the long periods away from home working as a sex worker. But the pregnancy was the last straw. Even when she miscarried the baby, he still followed through with the divorce. Huh. Good for Fred. He got out while he could. Yeah, I am sure he is thanking his lucky stars. Because mm-hmm. he could have gone the way of some of her other companions. <laughs> Divorced in 1948 was not the thing to be, and Dorothea found it difficult to find a place fitting in. She was an outcast again. She continued working in the sex trade, but even though she was only 19, after having two children and taking up drinking, she didn't hold the same appeal and wasn't bringing in the same cash as she had before she got married. Oh, that's interesting. She had just kind of let herself go. Oh, okay. So unfortunately, she was having a little bit of a rough time. She started to supplement her income from the sex trade by stealing from the men who employed her and writing fraudulent checks. By this time, she had a full repertoire of false names that she used. And of course, stories to go along with all of those names. She was a former Rockette that had twisted her ankle, an actress that had been taken advantage of, or a chef in the top seafood restaurants, overworked and having to fly between San Francisco and New York, just always stressed out. 
In her story, she would always weave a storyline that would elicit a little bit of sympathy. And when people's hearts are softened, they questioned her less. Oh, I can see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she liked to play the victim in whatever role. Yep. It's like, Dorothea, just tell them your real life. You are a victim (laughs) up until that point. But she didn't recognize her life as being a victim. Right. In early 1949, her fraudulent ways were brought to the attention of the police, and she was sentenced to one year in jail for her crimes. And a psych eval was ordered. It found that she was impulsive and a compulsive liar. Big surprise there. Mm -hmm. And was compelled to steal whatever she felt she was in need of. Which, again, not surprising with her upbringing. No. The time in prison proved to be another schoolyard for Dorothea. At first, she struggled. Other inmates looked down on her because of the filthy way she chose to keep her cell. Dorothea began to understand the different things that people attributed to status. It wasn't just fame and fortune that she needed to tell stories about. She had to present a whole picture to her audience. She pushed herself to keep her cell the cleanest and became a people pleaser. Hmm, it's becoming a deadly combination. Yeah, you can totally see how she evolved. Yeah. This worked for her. The other inmates took her under their wing and began to teach her their different skills. It just shows how adaptable she is to whatever situation she's in. Mm-hmm. When they're neglected and in abused relationships, they just have to learn a way to survive. Absolutely. And so she's completely adaptable. She was even released early after serving only four months for good behavior because of her newly turned over leaf. So she's smart. Mm -hmm. She knows how to read a crowd. And people just eat it up. Mm -hmm. Once released from prison, she put her newly learned skills to good use. She returned to the sex trade and continued stealing and writing fraudulent checks. But she was more careful about it now. The money she earned, she spent living lavishly. Nice clothing and perfume and furnishing her bedroom snagged her decent regular clients. So more upscale clients. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. So she knew that people attributed status to, you know, being wealthy and to looking nice. But now she had that extra piece of creating an environment where people wanted to be and felt special in. There are reports that during this time she gave birth to a third child that she also gave away in 1950 in San Francisco, but it's not as substantiated as the first two births. Okay, but this would have been her fourth pregnancy if it did happen. Yeah, fourth pregnancy, third child. Okay. In 1952, she met a sea merchant, Axel Johansson. At this time, Dorothea was calling herself Tea Singuela, keeping with her story of being raised in Mexico. Axel was smitten and the two were married. Very early in their marriage, Axel beat Dorothea severely for not having the house clean when he returned from a lengthy stay at sea. Oh, no. And he laid down the law that this is how it must be. I was just about to say, what a cool sounding name Axel is. And then right out of your mouth, it was like, oh, nope, he's a dirtbag. No, he is a dirtbag. Or was it the time? No, he's a dirtbag. You don't get to beat your wife relentlessly because the house is not clean enough for your liking. You hire a dang maid then. You're a dirtbag. <laughs> he was a dirtbag. But he had been away at sea for a really long time doing his job, and he felt that she wasn't keeping up her end of the bargain at home by keeping their house clean. She was supposed to have the house neat and tidy and be all ready for him when he got home. And she wasn't. Dorothea, being one to roll with the punches, adapted and used the experience to practice a very cultivated act of duplicity. So you see her character evolving even more with this training ground. She's like a chameleon. Mm -hmm. What was first brought on by Axel's abuse flourished into an art of living two lives. While Axel was home, Dorothea would spend all of her efforts making him happy, both in the kitchen and in the bedroom. 
When he was away, she worked as a sex worker and by the 1950s was running a brothel out of their home under the guise of a bookkeeping company. (laughs) That is wild. Mm -hmm. Complete with specials that you could request by calling a secret number. That is crazy. So I'm wondering, so she's running this successful brothel. What does she need Axel for? Why is she bending over backwards to please this man who's just going to beat her if she's not doing it, if she's able to provide for herself? Because being a madam at a brothel doesn't come with the same status in society that she wants. A married woman does. So it really is for her duplicity. Mm -hmm. During the daytime, I can be this housewife and married and all good upstanding citizen. And then at night, I can be Madam X. That's right. Only it wasn't night and day. It was for these month-long periods where Axel would be away at sea. Gotcha. So when the cat's away, the mouse will play. Absolutely. And she had turned it into these two totally different lifestyles. Axel was made aware of her extracurricular activities when he was away, thanks to his concerned neighbors. Oh, yeah. Concerned. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Could you imagine the rumors going around? The gossip mill. Oh, yeah. Which is kind of ironic because she's so worried about her status. Uh But then is literally running a brothel out of her home. (laughs) Well, it just goes to show that she really thought that she could keep these two lives separate. Like nobody would actually notice what she was doing while Axel was away, but then totally by her story of being the sweet little housewife when Axel was home. Right. No, Mm -hmm. they're they're all my cousins. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) They're all here for bookkeeping. Yeah. (laughs) But Axel, to remedy the situation, chose to try and beat Dorothea into submission Every time he returned from work. Oh, get rid of him. But having been beaten her whole life, it was an acceptable way to live for Dorothea. And she would do what Axel wanted while he was home. And when he would leave again, she would resume her business, resigning to pay the price of the beating when Axel returned again. To her, it was worth it. That was just what she was used to. Running the brothel and taking care of her girls led to Dorothea's next story. She began telling people in her community that she was a holistic doctor. She went as far as prescribing treatments and handing out medications that she had acquired. What? Mm Mm-hmm. And it got so bad that in 1961, Axel actually had her committed to the San Francisco Marine Hospital. He knew that he had to get her some help before she actually hurt someone with her practicing medicine. Oh, for sure. So was she put into like the psych ward there? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. There she was diagnosed with undifferentiated schizophrenia and told that it was the schizophrenia that caused her display narcissism and psychopathy. Because she had protected herself from a very early age with all of her stories, she couldn't tell the difference between her realistic hallucinations and things that had really happened to her. In their opinion, because of this, she would never be able to form any real emotional attachments to anyone around her. Hmm. Which is like a bang-on diagnosis. Totally. You can see how she's becoming the woman that she is. Mm -hmm. This has been her coping mechanism her whole entire life. Yep. A completely unqualified Axel didn't have a clue what to do with that kind of diagnosis. And when the hospital discharged Dorothea into his care with the simple instructions to not let her drink, he did the only thing that he could think of and locked her up at home and tried to hide her from the world. What? Yeah, he would go off to work and he's like, do not leave the house. This is everything you need. You can't open the door. For weeks at a time while he was gone. Mm -hmm. But mental illnesses weren't looked on very favorably at that time. And so he was afraid that any of his neighbors would notice that she was like this crazy person. And he was probably too embarrassed to have her committed and get the help that she needs. He did have her committed for quite some time. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. But when she returned home, he didn't want people seeing her again. Right. 
But when he returned home from locking her in the house, Dorothea had fled to Sacramento. She's like, enough with you. So what do you do when you're starting life all over again? You come up with a new story. Yep, but you fall back on what you know. With the life savings that she had taken from Axel, she set up a new brothel, choosing a nicer neighborhood this time at Fulton Street, because she had learned that it was easier to hide misdeeds under the guise of being an upstanding citizen. Unfortunately for her, her new neighbors didn't appreciate her business clientele in their backyards, and the police were alerted to this. <laughs> it would be really hard to hide a brothel, I think. Again, I think it's just one of those situations where you see that she doesn't fully understand how social interactions work. And to her, this is normal. Mm -hmm. So she's not thinking anyone's probably going to notice because she's just thinking this is just how life is. That's right. She's totally thinking that if she sits up in a nicer neighborhood, that her business is going to do better because it has more status attached to it. Right. Well, just like all of those clientele that wanted to come because it was a nicer room. Yeah. Not thinking that there's layers of social acceptability. And so in this more prominent neighborhood, what she was doing was totally unacceptable. Where in the neighborhood that she lived with Axel, it was just kind of gossiped about. Right. But in this neighborhood, they're actually turning her into the police. Yeah, I can see that. So the police came, and it was a very interesting sting operation that involved the police marking the sex workers with an invisible dye. They gained the evidence they needed to convict Dorothea of prostitution, and she was sentenced to 90 days in jail. <laughs> yeah, but didn't those officers sleep with these sex workers in order to mark them with the dye? Yes, I remember correctly. that part because I was like, oh yeah, pot, kettle, black. Yep. Yeah, I think so. So they put invisible powder on their hands and they marked the workers when they were being serviced so that when they brought out the workers later on, the workers can deny that they had had sex with them because they made them take off their clothes and shone the light on them. And there's the powder. Yeah, they're filthy little fingerprints all over the women's bodies. Uh huh. And Dorothea herself had offered up her breast to be fondled. And so she had powder on her breast as well. <laughs> Is it bad that this is one of the parts that I remember <laughs> from the case? <laughs> I'm like, oh, those officers. Yep. For shame. It was a hard <laughs> day at work for them. <laughs> yeah, poor guys. They go home to their wives. So how was work? Oh, yeah, it was a hard day. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Police could have charged her with other things, but they dropped those charges because they thought that this was Dorothea's first run-in with the law. She had changed her name a lot, and so they had no record of her having any previous convictions. It was during this time that her marriage with Axel was officially ended by him. Dorothea used her time in prison to come up with a new story and a new way of making a living. She read medical textbooks and dictionaries, and when she was released from prison, she started to promote herself as a nurse's aide that would help the elderly with their activities and personal care needs. Remember, she had cared for her father in the last month of his life, and so she felt qualified that she could do this again. Yeah, when she was eight years old. Mm -hmm. And I know we've talked about this before, but it's just so wild that in those times, people could just be like, yeah, I'm a nurse's aide. Yeah, I'm a doctor. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you need a lawyer, I'm that too. <laughs> That's right. You could be anything and everything that you wanted to be. Yeah, no one was asking for credentials, apparently. No. So at this point, she had been a rocket, an actress, a chef, a doctor, and now she was a nurse's aide. Yeah, that's so bizarre. 
she just liked to tell stories and she would reinvent herself to whatever she needed to be. Again, it just shows you how dynamic she was and how resourceful she was. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, she continued to pass herself off as being older than she was. Which wasn't hard now because the years of drinking and abuse had not been kind to her. Mm. But it also gave her more basis of trust with her clients and their families. So it worked to her advantage still. Which is so funny because she's acting more like a mother hen, yet she has no mothering instincts. Mm -hmm. But I think you'll see that her mothering instincts always have ulterior motives. Uh. So they're not really mothering instincts. I think it's that she learned that if you were sympathetic and took care of people that people liked you. Okay. Yeah. While taking care of the elderly, she would help herself to their food when they napped. And it was a very slippery slope of building entitlement that started. Loose change that was lying around the house wouldn't be missed by these clients that already had people caring for them. She needed it more than they did. And they certainly wouldn't miss a little alcohol from their liquor cabinets as well. Did she fill it back up to the line with water so they wouldn't notice? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) This sense of entitlement grew and she had to find ways to distract the client so that she could have more time to go through their belongings, looking for things that she needed more than them. Their medication and her reading came in handy for that. If she drugged the clients, they were too out of it to notice her lazing around their house all day or rummaging through their things and stealing them. That's so wild. You can just see this happening. Mm -hmm. It just builds, right? Yeah. Clients and their families never suspected, or at least if they did, no one raised the alarm. They thought that her home cooking and attentiveness to details for their loved ones' lives just meant that she was a really great nurse. They trusted her to take on some financial responsibilities like cashing and depositing checks. She was a bookkeeper after all. She has probably a lot more things that aren't even reported. Yeah. Dorothea would skim off the top without anybody being the wiser. These practices would continue until 1966 when Dorothea herself called the act quits. And I wonder if she just got bored or needed to reinvent herself again or if she was worried that she was going to get caught. Yeah, it's hard to say. My Mm -hmm. guess is she got bored because she's always telling all these stories and now it's like, oh, I'm actually becoming this. Like I need to start something new. And that's what I think it was too. I think she needed a new story. Her next story would begin on the corner of 21st and F Street. She rented a very large 24-bedroom house with the money that she had stolen and started a boarding house. Now, clients would come and bring their belongings to her. It decreased the amount of time she spent bringing all of her stolen possessions home from work. (laughs) That's convenient. And she could be stealing from more than one person at a time now. That's right. She was just thinking bigger. (laughs) She's just advancing her practice. That's That's all. That's right. She built up a story of being an elderly woman, even though she was still only in her 40s at the time, and established a role in the community as the nice Mexican boarding house woman that was just trying to make a living by caring for others. Huh. The boarding house did well because Dorothea wasn't turned off by some of the more rougher clientele. Her mother had taught her to be kind to alcoholics and have compassion on them. Plus, when they were passed out, they were easier to steal from. And they couldn't remember enough to question her about their missing things. Oh, yeah. Be like, oh, yeah, you took that with you. And they just disappeared. Oh, Oh, man. (laughs) You blew all your money at the bar. Do you not remember? (laughs) Oh, yeah. The money that she stole, she used to make herself into a new woman with expensive things, but also a compassionate one. She gave to the community and supported local charities with the money that she stole. That's so crazy to me. I think it's all the status for her, right? The status has been important for her all along. Exactly. 
This gained her even more approval and attention from the neighbors. Positive attention for once in her life. Mm-hmm. She employed locals as handymen, and there was never a shortage of people looking for work for cash in those days. Not now either, really. Cash never goes out of style. But most of these people she hired had questionable pasts of their own. And so this was another avenue that she was like, look, she see, she's helping all these downtrodden people. Mm-hmm. She probably figured out she can pay them less. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Roberto Puente was one of the handymen that she hired. The two hit it off and both had things that they wanted from the other. Roberto was an immigrant that wanted legal status and Dorothea had always wanted a real Mexican connection. When they married in 1968 in Mexico City, she felt that she was now officially Mexican something that she had claimed to be for most of her life. And she proudly took on her husband's name. Yeah, I could totally see her doing that. Mm -hmm. And now she has a Mexican family. She's got that big Mexican family that she's always wanted. So again, why can't this end here? And they Mm -hmm. lived happily ever after. No, that's not enough. (laughs) This is buried motives. Of course they didn't. No, because Roberto's a little bit of a dirtbag too. Their honeymoon didn't last long. And within a short period of time... With no qualms about showing his disgust about his older bride, Roberto started taking in younger women to be with. Oh, man. But Dorothea didn't seem to mind. When Roberto eventually left, she just filled the spare bedroom that he had been staying in with another boarder. Well, because all she really wanted was his name. Mm -hmm. And she has difficulty actually making any sort of attachment. So this guy cheated on her and she was like, well, whatever. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. She had what she wanted. She was operating under the radar of the police and using her newfound wealth to lift her social status. She was attending charity banquets and rubbing elbows with politicians and actual celebrities. For realsies this time. It wasn't actually a made up story. (laughs) That'd be funny. She's telling the story for realsies. (laughs) I'm sure that's what she said. Exactly. Yeah. She ate dinner with Pat Brown, Ronald Reagan and his wife, Jane Wyman. And even Clint Eastwood. Wow. Mm. I wonder what they thought after they found out. <laughs> Could you imagine? Well, because I'm sure we've all rubbed elbows with a killer sometime in our life. Mm-hmm. And so to find out later would just be so disturbing. She proudly displayed her pictures of these events around her home, showing to everyone what an important person she was. Yeah. Look at me and Ronald. Me and little RR. <laughs> We're besties. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I wonder how they feel that that picture is out there. Yep. But real life takes money to maintain and to keep up appearances, she needed more and more money. And there was only so much you could take from the boarders that were taking up residence with her. Well, and they're probably not wealthy boarders either. No, because she's taking up the ones that are easy to steal from. Yeah. And the ones that are down on their luck. Mm -hmm. So she starts hitting up bars again, looking for Johns. But this time she has a new act. She would pick out older gentlemen that she deemed wealthy. A discussion about pensions was a good way to gauge whether a man had money or not. Once she had figured out who she felt was the wealthiest man in the room, she would lay on the charm and get an invitation to go back to their place. Once there, she would slip drugs into their drinks, and while they were passed out, she would rob them blind. Wow. A few of these men were still conscious and aware that she was robbing them. But because of the paralyzing drugs that she had given them, there was nothing that they could do about it. This game would continue for a long time because very few men wanted to admit that they had been abused and taken advantage of by a woman. They were embarrassed. And so they wouldn't go to the police. Yeah, and especially a woman who's posing as a granny. Mm -hmm. One man eventually did come forward. 
Malcolm McKenzie, a 74-year-old regular at the Zebra Club. He reported to police that Dorothea had drugged him and then took his rare penny collection, money, and checkbook, and even greased a ring off of his finger while he was helpless to do anything to stop her. Wow. Unfortunately, it would take several years before a connection was ever made to Dorothea. She is such a tyrant. She just takes what she wants. Yeah. Right? You go back to that original psych eval and they are bang on. Yeah. And she's so smart in the fact of who she picks as her victims. Like knowing that the male ego is going to prevent them from turning her in. Well, remember, she's been picking Mark since she was a toddler. Yeah, that's true. Right? And mm-hmm. having to gauge her way and read people and know which ones were going to hit her and which ones weren't, which ones were going to be nice. So she's learned to read people from a very young age. Yeah, this has now become a skill for her. Mm-hmm. In 1976, Dorothea actually became infatuated with one of her marks and let the story play out more than normal. While still married to Roberto, she married another man who had charmed her, Pedro Montalvo. She didn't bother to file the paperwork, though, because that would have made her a polygamist. (laughs) But he believed that they were married Mm -hmm. and that she wasn't married to anybody else. That's right. How ironic that she's worried about being viewed as a polygamist. (laughs) (laughs) Dorothea, honey bunny. (laughs) Again, it just shows this duplicity of she's so worried about what other people will think of her. But she does these crazy, crazy things. Right. Like we know she's going to evolve into a murderer. Yeah. Yet, well, I can't be a polygamist because that's wrong. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) What would people think? Pedro was by far her worst husband and beat her the most severely. Each marriage she had just kept getting worse and worse. And this one was enough to make her swear off marriage forever. When Pedro took off two months after they were married, she didn't bother even looking for him. No, good riddance. Mm -hmm. And it's just so funny. Like, she's such a dirtbag and she's attracting all these dirtbags. Yeah, it's just so interesting. But she had her residence to keep her company and she had started yet another scheme. Now what? So she had learned that going to bars was a good place to pick up older gentlemen, but that bringing her targets back to houses was getting a little bit old. So Dorothea changed up her MO and began targeting older men just with pensions. And she would sit with them and have friendly conversations with them and cleverly gain enough information that she could then have their pension checks sent directly to her by completing a false change of address claim. So sneaky. She wouldn't even have to deal with them at all after their initial conversation. Yeah, and they would have no idea because they're not going to be thinking, this woman that I randomly talked to at the bar is the one who's getting my checks. No, this proved to be very lucrative. So lucrative that she needed to find a new way to spend her money. Opening a restaurant seemed like a good thing to do with her love of cooking and the notoriety from her famous tamales. (laughs) Can you imagine having that problem? I need to find a new way to spend my money because I'm getting too much of it. Why not just stop committing the fraud? (laughs) Yeah, and live your happy little life. But she thrives off this chaos. She thrives off of the manipulation and the deceit that she's doing. Mm Mm-hmm. So Dorothea convinces a friend, Ruth Monroe, to help her take over the food side of a nearby tavern, the Round Corner Tavern in Midtown. The restaurant endeavor made them partners, and the two women formed a close relationship, and they took care of one another. And Ruth needed some TLC. She was a vibrant and fun-loving woman, but life had dealt her some pretty bad cards recently. Her husband was diagnosed with terminal cancer, 
and in order to pay his medical bills, she was forced to sell their home. To protect their accounts and for her husband to receive assistance with his medical bills, she actually divorced him. Aww. But she still maintained a relationship. She, they just had to make that official so that he could receive assistance for his medical care and that she didn't have to use their whole fortune to pay for his medical bills and that she wouldn't be left completely desolate. But being a good friend, Dorothy asked Ruth to come and stay with her at the boarding house. Ruth moved in on April 11th, 1982. Even though their restaurant endeavor was costing a lot more money than what they thought it was going to and was not overly successful, the two were leaning on each other. Or at least Ruth thought. I was going to say this is her first friend, quote unquote. That's right. (laughs) Air quotes. On April 25th, Ruth's son William came to visit her and noticed that his mother was drinking, which was unusual for her. Dorothea had given a drink to her friend to help calm her stress nerves, creme de la menthe, a green drink with a sweet mint flavor. William took her at her word. His mother was in good spirits, but she did look a little tired and drained. And who wouldn't be? After moving and having to take care of an ill husband. Two days later, when he returned, his mother was in even worse shape. So tired that she wasn't getting up for visitors anymore. Dorothea told him that she was too sick and not to bother his mom. She told William of how his father had been particularly abusive during his mother's visit that day and had hit her with a cane. Which was not true. Or was it? It was a story that Dorothea told. That's why I'm assuming it's not true. Yeah. And there was nobody there to substantiate it. But William had wanted to look in on his mother. When he did, he found her in bed. And she was like a zombie, just blindly staring off into space and not responding to him. But Dorothea, la doctora, as she was calling herself these days, just said she would be fine. It was just from a shot that the doctor had given her. And William trusted Dorothea. At 8 p.m. that night, his sister, Rosemary, came to check on their mother. Ruth was still in bed, this time sound asleep. She hugged and kissed her mother before leaving her to rest. At 5.30 the next morning, Dorothea called Rosemary to tell her that something was wrong with Ruth and that she needed to come to the house right away. By the time that she arrived, Ruth was dead. Her first victim. Yep. Dorothea claimed that she had checked on her at 4 a.m. and that she had been sleeping peacefully, but when she checked on her again at 5.45, her friend was unresponsive. The autopsy revealed very high levels of acetaminophen, enough to cause necrosis of the liver which usually actually takes five to seven days at least, and at the very minimum, two days, for the liver to actually turn black. It was also found that Ruth had very high levels of codeine, enough to depress her breathing. So she had to have been giving her huge amounts. Mm Mm-hmm. And not just over a couple of days. Yeah. In her stomach was five ounces of a green mint-smelling liquid. The time of Ruth's death was predicted to be somewhere between 9 p.m. and 3 a.m., Okay, that's quite the span. It's a realistic time. Okay. But it does show that Dorothea was totally lying when she checked on her at 4 a.m. Right. She could not have been alive at that time. Dorothea explained the previous night in detail to the investigating officers for the coroner's report. Her friend had been feeling unwell because of her heart condition and that her arms and chest had been paining her and that Ruth was having emotional problems. Hmm. The cause of death was entered as undetermined. And it was assumed by authorities that she had committed suicide. What? Yeah. How do you go from those symptoms to suicide? Well, because Dorothea was telling them about all these emotional problems that she was having. She was so stressed out all the time and that she had been taking her own medication. So she's making it sound like she overdosed? Yeah. Okay. But they're not ruling it an overdose. 
Nope. They didn't huh. rule it an overdose, but they just say that the cause of death is undetermined and it was generally believed by the authorities that she committed suicide. Which means they're not going to be looking for a killer. They don't at all. At the time, Dorothea and Ruth's children were unaware of an investigation that was taking place into Malcolm's complaints and other fraudulent activities that were being reported by boarding house residents. It seems Dorothea wasn't as stealthy as she thought, and people were missing their checks. Had Ruth's children known at the time, they probably would have been more suspicious about the large amounts of money that had been taken out of their mother's personal account from the sale of her house and had been transferred into the joint business account that was shared with Dorothea. Right. But at the time, they didn't know that this investigation was taking place. Huh. And so they didn't even think to look into anything to deal with the money because Dorothea was this nice, upstanding granny. Yeah. Why would you think that? Mm -hmm. And they trusted her. Throughout the investigation, Dorothea played the distraught friend and was devastated when she had to close her business. Oh, yeah. Boo-hoo. Mm -hmm. She played the sweet old granny with investigators, but they weren't about to drop the charges. In August 1982, Dorothea was convicted of administering a controlled substance, grand theft, and forgery. But not in the case of Ruth, in the case of Malcolm. Oh, that was the guy who actually had enough guts to report her earlier. Mm -hmm. And it had taken all this time to actually bring a case about against her. Gotcha. She was sentenced to five years in prison. At the time of her sentencing, 30 other fraud cases were being investigated. But the judge decided to discount them all and bought into Dorothea's grandmotherly act. Oh, And remember, she had some connections, too, at the time in society. That's right. (laughs) And so he's like, there's 30 other cases. We're already charging her with some of them. So (laughs) she hangs out with Clint Eastwood. She must be good. (laughs) Okay. This time in prison, Dorothea knew the ropes and she was the experienced one on the block. But instead of knowing her way around the intricacies of the prison hierarchy and the unnamed social boundaries, she totally ignored it all. She hung out with everyone. Oh. And it went well for three years of her sentence. Wow. Everyone seemed to like her until she snitched on another inmate. Why did she snitch? Well, because she just wanted to get in with the prison guards. Oh. And I feel like she kind of loves the drama. Oh, yeah. Totally. She loved being the one that would just ignore all of the social norms in prison and just go from group to group and be that special person, the only one that could do that. Mm -hmm. But because she was doing this, she knew what was going on in each group. And so then she was snitching to the prison guards, too. Oh, man. So conniving. Mm -hmm. Because she snitched, she was beaten so badly and threatened that she had to be put into solitary confinement and protective custody for over a year. Snitches get stitches, Dorothea. Mm-hmm. This was like a throwback to all the times Trudy had locked her and her brother in the closet for days. Ooh. Dorothea had found a way to survive then, and she did now, too. She took up letter writing and, with her storytelling, kept quite busy with pen pals. Why didn't she just become an author? She totally could have. She could have been a fabulous author. Mm-hmm. She became pen pals with a man named Everson Gilmouth from Oregon. He was in his early 70s and was a widower with several adult children. He was taken with Dorothea and was totally duped by her story of being grossly misunderstood by the authorities. All she had been doing was trying to take care of the most vulnerable people, the one society had forgotten. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Poor little Dorothea. Yeah, she's a saint. Mm -hmm. 
When she was released from prison on September 9th, 1985, Everson was waiting for her in his shiny red 1980 Ford pickup. Over the course of their correspondence, Dorothea had convinced Everson to leave his home in Oregon and move to Sacramento to be with her. Everson used his savings to secure Dorothea a new, slightly smaller house than she had enjoyed before at the upper apartment of 1426 F Street, right next door to her previous house. That's so crazy. Mm -hmm. She needed a new place and she really loved the community that she was in. And so he's like, okay, honey, I'll make that happen for you. Yeah, I guess so. And so the house next door had an upper apartment that they could set up residence in. Everson now at 77 and Dorothea at 56 would live the next three months in air quoted bliss, preparing for their upcoming nuptials. So she's getting ready to off him. Is that Uh why it's quote unquote bliss? Yes. And she already said that she wasn't getting married again, but she's going through the acts and the motions with him. At her new house with Everson by her side, Dorothea talked about all the ways she would run a house for people in need. Everson seemed to be totally convinced of Dorothea's act. But something happened in October 1985. When Dorothea started writing checks out of their joint account, which they had set up to be together, and depositing money into her savings account, Everson put a stop payment on one of them. Hmm. The two were supposed to be getting married on November 2nd, but following the stop payment, Everson suddenly became ill and for days was so weak that he could not rise from his bed. Sounds just like Ruth. Mm -hmm. Then Everson's sister received a mailgram dated November 2nd, telling her that Everson had left and was moving to Palm Springs. Apparently, he had just vanished from Dorothea's life but not before he had had the good sense to sign over his truck and his trailer to different people. She is so horrible. Mm -hmm. Of course, Everson had never left the house, but was tightly wrapped in a massive cocoon of bedsheets soiled with his vomit and urine and blue toilet deodorizer, covered with another layer of plastic sheathing and wrapped with electrical tape. She dumped toilet bowl cleaner all over him to try and mask the smell. Those little pucks. She kept in with him. Okay. Yep. Dorothea hired a local ex-con, Ismael Flores, to do some renovations on the house, which she paid him very well for. One of the things she commissioned him to do was to build a six-foot by two-foot by three-foot box, complete with removable lid, all for books that she needed to store. Um, you mean a coffin? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think I just feel like that would be, um, how do you not know that that's a coffin? Exactly. And being an ex-con, you would totally clue into that. But she was paying him good money and... Yeah, he's like, oh man, I'm just making her a bookcase. That's right. I can sign up for this job. When the project was completed and had been left for Dorothea overnight, she asked Ismail for one more favor. The box, now filled with books, was too heavy for her to move by herself. Would he mind giving her a hand laying the now 300-pound box in the back of the truck and dropping it off at a storage locker? Ismail agreed because she offered Emerson's shiny red truck as payment. Oh, he probably knew dang well, but was like, yeah, okay, I'll do this. Get the truck and get out of here. That's right. He knew what was going on. I'm sure of it. Yeah. But he's probably like, I didn't kill him. Especially when Dorothea changed her mind suddenly and asked him to toss the books instead into a ditch along the Garden Highway in Sutter County instead of putting them in the storage. (laughs) He knew exactly what was going on. Because who in the heck would pay someone to make a box to store your books and then say, ah, just dump them in the ditch? Maybe she just thought everything's going digital now these days. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Not back then. She's just going crazy. Mm -hmm. Over the following months, Dorothea kept up correspondence with Everson's children. 
and when a fisherman found the box on January 1st, 1986, they had no idea that the John Doe that was petrified inside was actually their father. Emerson wasn't identified until 1988, over two years later. He remained a John Doe that whole time. That is so sad. And so the kids would just think he was still in Palm Springs. Mm -hmm. In April 1986, tired of the ruse that she was playing with Emerson's sister and his children, Dorothea wrote and introduced a new woman, Irene, and said that he was now with her and that his health was now failing. The whole time, Dorothea was having Emerson's pension benefits and social security benefits delivered to her home at 426 F Street. It's just amazing that nobody is noticing this, but I guess how would they? No, they don't know that he's not getting his pension benefits somewhere else. Yeah. More than $5,000 was being deposited in Dorothea's account each month from all of the fraudulent endeavors that she was taking part in. Did you do the conversion? Yeah, it's 11000 Wow. Mm-hmm. That's not a bad payday. Nope. And you think that would be enough, right? You would think. But it wasn't. After Emerson's death, Dorothea rented out a spare bedroom of her upstairs flat. The downstairs of the house was still occupied by another family and remained that way until May 1987 when Dorothea would take over those four additional bedrooms as well and start renting them out. She wasn't running a boarding house per se, because according to her parole, she wasn't allowed to do that. But she would invite others who were down on their luck to stay with her. She would feed them and wash their clothing and provide wholesome entertainment for them. And in exchange, they would turn over their government assistance checks and all of their mail to her. She would then cash their checks and give them an allowance while they stayed with her. That's how she would ensure that their board would be paid for, and she would give them the reassurance that they always had a room at her house and one of her hot, delicious meals. Wow. So just turn everything you have over to me and I will take care of you. Mm -hmm. Dorothea was super selective about her clientele. She would only take in those that other boarding and halfway houses had rejected. Yeah, so she was playing on their desperateness. Mm Mm-hmm. They were the drug addicts and alcoholics and mentally ill that were too unstable to keep a steady residence anywhere else. And so what she was offering them was like, here, you just turn this over. I'll give you your money back, what you need, minus the expense of staying here, and you'll always have a place to stay. And if they're too out of it, they're not going to notice that she's taking advantage of them either. Nope. The clientele that she had were so far gone that everyone else had stopped trying to help them. And apparently she had forgotten that according to her parole, she also wasn't supposed to be working with anybody with any type of diminished capacity, like the elderly, the mentally ill, disabled, or anyone addicted to any substances. Oh, man. But that part has eluded her memory. Remember, she's old, you know. It does seem, though, that she did very well with this kind of clientele. She had a special way with them. The compassion her mother had taught her, she used to care for them after all their failed attempts at reform. She ran a strict house with proper mealtimes, set activities, and very clear expectations. She even provided yard time for them and chores to keep them active and having a sense of accomplishment. Sounds like a mini jail. That's what I just, that's like literally (laughs) my next line. I'm guessing these are all things that she experienced in prison. Yeah. She's just taken that environment that she did well in. Yeah. And has now created that in her boarding house. She's like, this works really well to keep a lot of people in line at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so that's what she did. That's crazy. Sure, she was a little overbearing and was involved in every aspect of the residents' lives. But to the community, she was a martyr trying to single-handedly take on an uncaring government. She would find little jobs for her clients to do and small ways that they could make small amounts of cash for themselves. 
She got a reputation among social workers as having a way with difficult cases and seemed to be a welcome relief to the overburdened government system. I'm shaking my head. You can't see it, but I'm shaking my head. <laughs> She's genius. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dorothea's kindness and care extended to others not staying in her home. She frequently hired ex-cons that no one else would because of their past. She gave them jobs around the house, like cleaning floors and replacing carpets, burying garbage, and taking care of old sewer lines. She paid them $20 cash, and they would do pretty much whatever she wanted. Wow. Well, and she's not scared of these ex-convicts because she's bigger and badder than all of them. She's been one herself. Yeah. Dorothea became very well educated on all of the subsidies and government assistance programs and made sure that all of her residents had applied for every single one that they could. When a resident left her house, she never stopped their payments or wow. forwarded their mail. It's ingenious, really. Like, as a criminal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a delicate balance of keeping the residents there for long enough time to start getting their checks delivered to the house, but not so long that anyone started to ask questions, or even worse, tied up a room so long that new checks, I mean clients, couldn't come stay at the house. <laughs> yeah, they were just all dollar signs to her. Mm-hmm. She developed a calendaring system that allowed her to rotate the residents through her limited number of rooms. When it was time to rotate, she would provide a resident with a little extra allowance and encourage them to celebrate their good behavior at her house. The addicts would almost always find their way into old habits, and anonymous tips to the police resulted in them being picked up by the police and having to spend 30 days in jail, which would then open a room for somebody else to come and stay at the house. She did them so dirty. Uh-huh. So she knows they're a recovering addict, gives them the extra money, oh, celebrate, knowing full well. That they're going to slip up and partake of whatever substance they're addicted to. Yep. Oh, she's terrible. And she would do it on a regular basis to these people. Murder aside, that is one of the most dirtbag moves. So bad. Mm -hmm. After these people have struggled and worked so hard to become clean. Yeah, and she does. She gets them clean. They're doing well. And then she would purposely plan for them to have a relapse so that they would vacate their room. She could bring somebody new in. She would start collecting their checks. And then she would do the same thing to those people. Yeah. And because when she gets rid of that one person, she's still collecting their checks. Yep. So her monthly income must be just growing exponentially. Yeah. Not all the rooms would turn over constantly. Dorothea did have some loyal long-term residents. And these clients would lie for her to maintain their place in Dorothea's good books. Hmm. Plus, the house was just a fun place to be with good food and games and lively conversation. All of the years of keeping people comfortable and entertained in the brothels had taught Dorothea how to entertain, even when it was without the sex. I was going to say, even with her clothes on. So she just took every experience that she had had, turned it into a learning opportunity, and applied that knowledge to just keep on going. Oh, it's always so frustrating when people like this just waste their skills and talents. Because imagine what she could have done. Mm -hmm. in life to improve society. She could actually help these addicts. She was good at turning them around. Yeah. Her loyal, longer-term residents were ones that Dorothea could trust with specific tasks or ones that had particular talents that she could utilize. John McCauley was one of Dorothea's longer-term residents, and so was a man known as Chief. He was a large man, and Dorothea would have him and John help her out in the garden, moving heavier items and doing the grunt work of digging and mixing and pouring concrete for Dorothea's various projects. They were some of the only individuals allowed into her precious garden. 
while Dorothea shared almost everything she had with anybody that came through her door. Her garden with its prized tomatoes was strictly off limits. She was very verbal to anyone, child or adult, that dared step among her flower beds in the backyard. Hmm. I wonder why. Yeah. So much for being that nice, sweet old lady. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't mess with the grandma's garden. Nope. In early February 1988, 51-year-old Alvaro Jose Rafael Gonzalez Montoya came to live with Dorothea. He was a gentle giant from Costa Rica that had immigrated to the States legally in 1962. He had developmental delays and schizophrenia, and his speech was very hard to understand. When he pronounced his name, most would only hear Bert, so that's how they referred to him. That's so sad because he has got a fabulous name, Mm -hmm. and to have it just shortened to Bert. Yeah. Not that Bert's not an okay name. Actually, in the court documents, they refer to him as Alberto. And so maybe that's where they got Bert from. Mm -hmm. But on his death certificate and like on his gravestone, it's all Alvaro. And when you listen to the interviews, they refer to him as Alvaro. Okay. But he got this nickname Bert, which people who worked with him, that's how they referred to him as. Well, people tend to Americanize things. Mm-hmm. Alvaro, I'll say Alberto. Yeah. Okay, he's Bert. Yeah. Yeah, because it's easier for them. That's right. Yeah. And that seems like what had happened. Mm-hmm. Prior to coming to live with Dorothea, he had lived for five years at a detox center. While he would drink alcohol, he wasn't a fumbling alcoholic. There was just really no other suitable place for him to live because of the voices he heard and that he engaged with. He would tell people that he spoke to his deceased father and other spirits and that they had told him always to kill himself. Oh. Because of people's reactions to him, he was withdrawn and would only speak when directly spoken to. So he did have some mental health issues. Yeah. For a couple of social workers, though, Bert had found a way into their hearts. They related to his story. They believed that his developmental delays were due to beatings that he had received as a child. Aw. And when they took the time to get to know him and engage him in conversations, he really was a sweet and kind-hearted man. Because of their fondness, they approached Dorothea about taking Bert in. They felt it would be the perfect place for him. Dorothea, of course, agreed. The more medical problems that an individual had, the more government benefits they were entitled to. Oh, yeah. But even Dorothea softened a kind-hearted Bert, giving him a small kitten to take care of on his own and inviting him into her kitchen to help her prepare meals. And she even had him start to call her mama. So she's showing some like genuine kindness towards him. Well, it's interesting that these people that she takes in, she almost, like you said, becomes this motherly figure to. Yeah. So bizarre to me that Mm -hmm. this is what's happening. And to even give him a kitten, like she doesn't need to do that. But she has this kind of sixth sense of how to connect with people or manipulate them. Well, I was just going to say it would give them a false sense of relationship with her, Mm -hmm. right? Security with her, love. She's going to take care of me. She's kind. She knows how to present the story. Yeah. And then they would feel like, oh, she would never take advantage of me. Mm -hmm. Dorothea set up a strict regime for Bert. And under her care, Bert seemed to flourish. He began showering regularly and wearing clean clothes, taking his meds, and his speech improved dramatically. When social workers would check on him, they were surprised at the change in him and grateful for Dorothea's care, so happy that Bert was being taken care of. Hmm. She even had him start to help her in the garden when Chief disappeared. Oh. She had him dig holes for peach trees and move the garden items that were too heavy for her to move. Bert was special enough that he was invited into Dorothea's room after dinner for special treats and drinks, and that's when his energy started to drain. Oh, it's that green drink. She didn't give that to all of them, but... Okay. Creme de menthe. In April 1988, 
at one of his checkup appointments at the detox center. He attempted to tell one of the nurses what was happening to him by saying that he didn't like the pills that mama was giving him because they didn't make him feel good. Mm. When trying to narrow down which one of his medications was giving him side effects, they grew suspicious that it was not one of the medications in his normal regime and asked Dorothea what she was giving him. Dorothea flew off the handle and started to berate the nurse about not knowing how difficult it was to take care of Bert and that if they wanted to take him back, then by all means, you can take on the responsibility and they are welcome to have him. It wasn't actually the first time that Dorothea had raged in public. Just a month earlier, another social worker had come in to do a check on the house and had watched her have a huge argument with another resident. But that social worker just assumed that the negative interaction was because Dorothea was getting a little bit burned out and needed a break. She's like, <laughs> oh, she's dealing with all these super difficult people. No wonder she's got to snap sometime. Oh, but they still goodness. kept sending her clientele. Well, and to feel sorry for her, mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, she's just so great. Yeah. This would be hard on anyone. Meanwhile, this is totally an act to shift the blame or the suspicion away from her. Yeah. He's like, fine, then have him back. I don't want to take care of him anyway. He's such a problem. Dorothea's defensiveness was noted at the detox center that day with Bert as being unusual. And the nurse tried to give other options for living arrangements to Bert. But he didn't want to return to the detox center because mama's house was so much nicer. So he did end up going home with Dorothea. Oh, it was the last medical appointment that Bert would ever attend. Yeah, because now she knows they're on to her. She's got to off him. Mm-hmm. But she had already started. Yeah. And it seems that there was really no rhyme or reason. Unless she was totally faking that soft spot for Bert. Why would she choose to target him? The only reason that I can think of is that because he had this soft spot in with these two social workers, they checked up on him fairly regularly. Mm. And so they were probably coming around more often than she was used to. So she was worried they would blow her cover. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking, because that's the only reason that I can find. So sad. By August, Bert's health had deteriorated significantly. For the time that he had stayed at Dorothea's house, he had a habit of getting a couple of beers and two or three burritos at the local bar. It was a routine that was supported by Dorothea, who would pay the bar each month for Bert's beers and his burritos. Up until now, he had never become intoxicated with just a couple of beers. But in August, he passed out at the bar and had to be carried home. Wow. He was seen once after that outside the home on August 24th and then was never seen again. Dorothea had taken care of Bert the same way that she had Emerson. She had drugged him and then had him lay down on a bed that was prepared for him, complete with comfy blankets and plastic sheets. Oh my goodness. Could you imagine? No. Red flag. Red flag. Plastic sheets. Red flag. <laughs> <laughs> but Bert wasn't so easily forgotten. And the social workers that had placed him in Dorothea's care checked on him every once in a while. And in October, when they came to see how Bert was doing, Dorothea told them that Bert was ill and that's why they couldn't see him that day. So they came back a short time later and Dorothea told them that Bert had left the country to go visit his family. This didn't sit right with the social worker named Judy. She had tried to locate Bert's family in the past and had no success finding anyone that would care for him. Uh -uh. She told Dorothea that when Bert returned to let her know. And she let it drop that if Bert didn't return to the country, that his government subsidies would end. Dorothea assured Judy that Bert's absence was just temporary and that he would be back to collect his checks at the beginning of the month. Hmm. So she doesn't want her paychecks to be turned off. Right. But now she's also saying he's going to be back at the beginning of the month. Mm -hmm. When Judy returned to check that Bert had returned at the beginning of the month, Bert was still not there. 
Dorothea said, oh, don't worry, he's going to be here this weekend. That's when he's returning. The social worker was super suspicious about this and called the police. On November 7th, police came to Dorothea's house to inquire after Bert's whereabouts. She told them that he had just been there a few days ago, that he had returned on the weekend, but now he had decided to go live with his sister in Utah. Oh, you just missed him. Dang, nabbit. Yep. And she had other residents collaborate her story. Yeah, because she had those ones that would lie for her. Mm -hmm. So she's smart this time and says, oh, he's not out of the country. So he can still collect his checks. Yeah. He's just going to Utah to live with family now. But nobody is double checking to see where his checks are being delivered. No. As the police were leaving the house, a resident, John Sharp, who had lived with Dorothea for a long time, slipped Detective Cabrera a note that said, she's making us lie. <gasps> Good for him. Mm-hmm. The detective arranged to meet John outside the house since obviously he didn't feel comfortable talking where he lived. Imagine the nerve it would have taken to be able to slip him that note. Mm -mm. Like how scary. So they had come in and confessed and she's like, oh yeah, you know, talk to anybody here. They'll tell you Bert was here this weekend and he's left to live with family. And so they go around and they talk to everybody and they're like, yep, yep, that's mama says this. Once John felt safe, he started telling the police this crazy story about people going missing and holes being dug in Dorothea's backyard and then always being filled in at night. That's so creepy. Mm -hmm. They were always the residents that got sick, needing Dorothea to take care of them, but then they were never seen from again. It was an interesting story in light of the missing resident, but Dorothea was a sweet old woman who was a strong supporter of the community and her reputation among the social circles spoke for itself. John, on the other hand, was an alcoholic who had been in trouble with the law multiple times before. Oh, so they're not going to take his word over Dorothea's. They are questioning it for sure. While John is raising suspicions, Dorothea is still trying to cover her tracks with Judy. She has one of the ex-cons, Donald Anthony, call and pretend to be Bert's brother-in-law to say that Bert is staying with them. Donald, though, leaves his actual name as the brother-in-law. And in the call, he refers to Alvaro using his nickname, Bert, which Judy finds really suspicious because his family wouldn't know that they nicknamed him Bert. Right. The social worker, Judy, receives a second call from Donald Anthony. He tells her the same story, but this time he refers to himself as Michael Obergon. <laughs> That's original. Yeah. Judy was a sharp lady and notices that the two calls had come from the same person. She recognizes <laughs> that the voice is the same. And On... she's been at the house and talked to all of them. Yeah, but he doesn't live there. Okay. He's just one of the handyman that. Right. On November 10th, Judy receives a letter written in Donald's handwriting from Reno telling him the same story. This letter is from Michael Obergon. Hey, <laughs> Bert's in Utah with us. Meanwhile, the letter is postmarked from Nevada. (laughs) Whoops. Dorothea, you get what you pay for. Yep. All of this is super suspicious, and Judy calls the police again. Right after she calls, Dorothea to tell her about all of her discoveries. Mm. So at this point, this just tells me that Judy actually isn't on to Dorothea. She's thinking that something else has happened to Bert. That's true, or she wouldn't have told her. That's right. Based on John and Judy's stories... The police returned to Dorothea's house on November 11th at 9.15 in the morning. They have been collecting some intel about Dorothea's operation and now know that she is in violation of her parole for running a boarding house. Detective Cabrera, Detective Brown, and Dorothea's parole officer, Jim Wilson, start to question Dorothea and do a preliminary search of the house, which lasted almost 10 hours. Well, I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. 
Inside the house, they find it mostly tidy and orderly. There is a lot of evidence that Dorothea has been operating a boarding house and taking care of residents. She has a calendar marked with the appointments for a number of people, multiple people's identification, mail, and prescriptions. Most of it is hidden in her bedroom. You know, she's just keeping things safe for everybody, right? Yep. Police also find dog-eared medical books that highlight meds that she had used in her previous charges. Ooh. Mm -hmm. When asked about a particular odor that comes from her bedroom, Dorothea blames it on a dead rodent underneath the floorboards that she's had difficulty removing. Because she's a little old woman, you know. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Do they look under the They do eventually, yeah. When they were done in the house... The detectives asked Dorothea if Dorothea would allow them to do a little digging in the garden. The social worker had insisted that they bring a shovel along with them. Dorothea is fine with them digging and even loans them one of her own shovels. What? Why would she want them back there? She has no problem with it. They start digging in the garden where the dirt looked like it had been most recently disturbed. As they shovel, they turn up random pieces of garbage, but Dorothea had already told them that she had buried garbage in the backyard. And so they weren't overly excited or concerned about this finding. They pulled up several old pieces of leather-like material that resembled beef jerky and felt that they were onto something. So they kept digging in the same spot, but they were being hampered by this stubborn tree root. Detective Cabrera pulled on the stump to release it, and what broke free was a human tibia. Oh my goodness. The foot, complete with shoe, remained visible in the hole that was left behind. Can you imagine discovering that? He was down in the hole. He had passed up his shovel and with his hands was yanking on this thing that he thought was a tree root. Oh my goodness. That would be so traumatizing after. So gross. No amount of soap could like (laughs) wash your hands after that. No. Dorothea fringed shock and played it up so much that the police actually took her inside to get her a drink to calm her nerves. She's going to act like someone else did this. She has no idea. Yeah. The body that the detectives had uncovered was definitely not Bert. It had been there much longer than that. The detectives stopped their digging and called for reinforcements, believing that these older remains might actually be historical findings left over from homesteaders from past times. Oh, no. So to their untrained eye, they're like, oh, it's not a fresh body. And so maybe this is just something left over from a homesteader's cemetery. They were going to need some more professionals, and arrangements were made for them to continue digging the next day. Police did take Dorothea into the station that night for questioning. And it's actually not at night, it's like early morning the next day. First off, she claims that she was born Puente. When asked about John Sharp's story and about the other residents, she is quick to make sure that the detectives know that they were all alcoholics. And so she attacks their credibility. She's totally throwing them under the bus. Mm -hmm. She plays innocent the whole time and even asks them to tap the phone so that they can listen if and when Bert's going to call again. Wow. Can you please just tap the phone? That way you know that he's still alive because I want to find him too. And I know he's been calling. And it would just make her sound so innocent. Mm -hmm. It is an interview that you have to watch because she looks like she totally believes what she is telling about all the renovations that she's had done in the backyard, about all the concrete that was laid because she didn't like to do yard work. She appears very genuine. Well, she's had 50 plus years of telling stories. Mm -hmm. She's mastered it. Well, it even had me believing she actually believes these lies. Good. Like, was she so deluded into thinking that these are things that have actually happened? Sometimes people will start to believe their lies. Mm -hmm. And the police believed her too. 
they actually pay for her cab to return her home. Wow. That's so crazy. Can you imagine later knowing like we treated her so nice and she was staring us right in the face. And they know that she's like this ex-convict that has been charged with fraud and drugging people. They bring that up during the interview, but she keeps saying, like, I don't want to go back to prison. You know, I'm trying to be this nice woman. I want to get off parole, all of these things. And so they're like, oh, she's being so forthcoming about all these other things. Yeah. That she must be telling us the truth. And the older she gets, the more unassuming she probably appears. Mm -hmm. Her answers were very interesting, but not suspicious enough to hold her. And during that interview, she actually agrees to let the police do more digging. And so they're thinking like, oh, she's letting us do more digging. Yeah, she has nothing to do with anything we find. That's right. So it's perfectly fine. Because only a crazy person would let you dig into their backyard where they know they've buried bodies. Yep. The next day, a whole crew sets up shop in Dorothea's backyard to remove remains. Dorothea watched from inside the house until she couldn't take it any longer. She asked Detective Cabrera if she was under arrest, and he tells her no. And so she asks if she can go over to the Claren Hotel to have a cup of coffee with her nephew. Cabrera says fine, and even escorts her through the personnel and the crowds of people that have gathered. Oh, man. Later in an interview, he sheepishly admits that that was not the smartest move to make. (laughs) No, you led the criminal right through people so that she could escape right past the police line. Yep. Here you go, hon. About 20 minutes after allowing Dorothea to leave in her little red overcoat, they found another body. Over the next three days, a total of seven bodies were unearthed in the yard of 1426 F Street. Oh my goodness. Leon Carpenter's body was found buried only two feet deep, not far from another body. She was found in a fetal position, fully clothed with shoes. She was 77 and ill with cancer when she came to stay at the boarding house. In the spring of 1987, Dorothea had had a plumber come and investigate some water bubbling up in the southeast corner of the backyard. Dorothea at that time had a two by four foot hole dug to investigate it, and it was left open overnight and filled the next day. Leon's body was found in that hole. Aww. Dorothea had only taken care of her a couple of weeks before she had grown bored with her. Benjamin Fink's body was found buried directly in front of the metal shed. It had also been wrapped in several layers of bedding and plastic and secured with duct tape. Benjamin was 55 when he entered Dorothea's house on March 9, 1988, in hopes of having someone nurse him because he had chronic lung infections. The doctoring he received was not the kind he expected. Vera Faye Martin's body was found buried just an inch or two under the ground beneath the metal shed. She was wrapped in knotted sheets and blue absorbent pads. She was fully dressed and still even had her jewelry on. Her watch on her wrist was still ticking. (gasps) Oh, that's creepy. Mm -hmm. And also shocking that Dorothea didn't take it. Yeah, I don't know why she wouldn't have. Maybe she doesn't want any physical evidence of them left Mm -hmm. behind. Vera was a 61-year-old known to be verbally abusive and be a difficult tenant, but was missed by her daughter and her son in the fall of 1987. Dorothy Miller's remains were found under the concrete that had been laid around the rose bushes. Her body was found wrapped in four layers of fabric, sheets, a quilt, and then plastic. All of it was knotted together and tied with twine. She was in the fetal position and was wearing most of her clothes but no shoes. Dorothy was 64 when she came to live with Dorothea and had been quite taken with Dorothea and had become like her little shadow. She tried to follow her everywhere, showing off her introspective poetry. Of course, Dorothea couldn't have somebody watching her every move. No. James Gallup's body was buried under the gazebo. 
Like the others, his body had been found wrapped in knotted layers of bedding. At 62, he was recovering from surgery when he entered Dorothea's house in hopes of having someone nurse him back to health in February 1987. He had an inoperable, non-malignant brain tumor, and for him, he didn't like the way Dorothea took his mail and checks away from him and had threatened to turn her over for stealing. Two weeks after threatening her, James disappeared in the middle of the night. Yeah, I bet he did. Mm -hmm. Anybody who inconveniences her in the slightest, she just is killing them. Yep, she's got to protect her little story that she's got going on, right? What a monster. Mm -hmm. Betty Palmer's body was found buried in a very shallow hole in the front yard and covered with a statue. Her head, hands, and lower legs had been severed from her body and were never found. Oh, that's always the worst when you can't find those body parts. Mm -hmm. It could not be determined if the head and limbs had been removed before or after death, but the nightgown that Betty was wearing was found to have no blood on it. Betty had moved into the house in the fall of 1986. She suffered from mental health issues and had been homeless for quite some time. She clashed with Dorothea over the control of her mail and cashing her own checks. She could handle her own money, thank you very much. She'd even put a note on her government account that the checks that she received from them, that she was the only one allowed to cash them, and that they had to ask for ID when somebody cashed them. Oh, she was the only one allowed to cash her checks. She had been invited up to Dorothea's room for drinks on August 18th to talk through their difficulties. Her identification card was one of the ones found in Dorothea's room, but it had Dorothea's picture on it. Oh, and I'm wondering, because she's the only one so far that has her head and hands removed. I wonder if it was more anger because she had kind of double crossed Dorothea, made it harder for her because now she has to get this ID and just can't simply cash her check. That could have been the reason, or it might have been that Betty was a little bit more well known in the community. And so they were afraid Mm. of her being identified. That could be. And her nightgown having no blood would indicate that she was redressed later. Mm -hmm. Or she was dismembered long after all the blood in her body had dried. Yeah, it's such a creepy thought. Mm -hmm. Bert Montoya was found in the southeast corner of the yard under a peach tree that he had dug the hole for. Oh, she had him dig his own grave? Mm -hmm. She often actually did that with the men. He was fully clothed and wrapped in multiple layers of knotted bedding and plastic and then secured with duct tape. It was estimated that he had been dead weeks to months and that his body had decomposed for at least one to six days before being buried. He had several drugs in his system, like all of the others, all of which had been prescribed to him except for carbamazepine, a seizure medication that caused excessive drowsiness, especially when taken with alcohol. Oh no. All of the bodies, except for Betty's, were intact and showed no signs of trauma. Several of them had their limbs folded and taped into place to condense the space that they would take up in the ground. Yeah, some of those holes were not very big. Nope. And you can't always be digging a six by two by three foot hole. No. That would totally give it away. I don't know how all of these holes being dug didn't give it away. She was just doing gardening in her backyard. Yeah, but we know for gardening, you're not digging giant holes all the time. Well, she always had an excuse like, oh... You know, there's extra water in this corner here, so I want to dig up this area to see if there's any pipes that have burst. Right. Or I'm going to plant the peach tree right here. Or we need to make sure that the sewer line is draining properly before we put the cement pad in. And so we'll dig the hole Mm. down, make sure that there's nothing going wrong with it. Gee. Yeah. She always had an excuse. And she had other people dig the holes. And then she would have these loyal tenants move the bodies for her. And then most of them she killed afterwards and had the next person move their body. So Mm -hmm. she's not even getting her hands dirty. Nope. 
While traces of flurazepam were found in all of the victims, along with numerous other drugs, it was hard to tell if the levels had actually been toxic. Because of this, the causes of death were all considered undetermined. Flurazepam is a benzodiazepine that is used to treat insomnia. When taken with alcohol, it causes excessive drowsiness, and an overdose can cause a coma and death because it depresses the respiratory drive. Yeah. So all of them had this particular drug in their system. So it's basically like a sleeping pill. Mm -hmm. And Dorothea had multiple prescriptions for this particular drug. Oh, so many. When the police discovered the second body, they realized the error in letting Dorothea out of their sight. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? I forgot about that (laughs) for a second. They're like, oh, wait a minute. Where did the homeowner go? (laughs) And that poor officer who let her out is like, um... Sorry, guys. (laughs) But it was too late. She had already caught a cab to Stockton. A warrant was issued for her arrest on November 14th, and her face flashed on every TV and was printed on every newspaper. Two days later, a man called the police to tell them that he had been approached by Donna Johansson in a Los Angeles bar, and she had offered to cook him Thanksgiving dinner. She had been the nicest lady who had told him how to increase his pension checks and joked around about her moving in with him. She had given him her number and address of where she was staying. When the man saw the same woman on TV, he promptly called the police. (laughs) Can you imagine making that connection? No. (laughs) Like sitting there realizing while you're eating your pancakes at the diner. Like, uh, wait a minute. (laughs) So woman that I was going to Thanksgiving dinner with. Wouldn't you second guess yourself? Like, I feel like because I'm always so suspicious, especially after doing this podcast, that if I saw that on the news, I'd be like, wait, is that really her? Like, is that really the person that I'm talking to? So good for him for calling. Yep. On November 16, 1988, Dorothea was arrested in a downtown Los Angeles hotel where she had told the stranger to meet her. Oh. And wouldn't you totally feel like you had dodged a bullet? Like, here's this serial murder, and I was just about to accept an invitation from her. Yeah, all for a little turkey. (laughs) And stuffing. (laughs) You would have a good story to tell, though. Yeah, but I don't want to ever have a close call like that. (laughs) On July 3rd, 1990, Dorothea was charged with nine counts of first-degree murder. One for every body that was found in the backyard, and then one each for Ruth and Emerson. On February 19, 1992, the trial court granted Dorothea's motion to change the venue, and the case was transferred to Monterey County Superior Court on July 9, 1992. The jury heard all about the multitude of bags of cement that she had ordered to cover up her crimes, that despite the carpets being replaced, there were streaks of blood and body fluids from the upstairs bedrooms to the backyard and flabbergasting volumes of prescription drugs that Dorothea had within her possession. Oh my goodness. They also heard testimony from Dorothea's friends about her joking about hiding bodies in the backyard and saw financial records that showed that Dorothea was pocketing over $5,000 a month of other people's money. Yeah, that is a good paycheck. Mm -hmm. So did they find anything under her floorboards in her room? Like the officer had said that her room smelt So when, when they brought up the carpet... They found all of these stains. Oh, okay. Yeah, from body fluids and stuff like yeah. that. There wasn't anybody like actually in the floorboards. Okay. But it was because all of the body fluids and the blood had leaked through from other victims underneath the carpet. So she had replaced the carpet, mm. but didn't actually do the work of pulling out the floorboards and cleaning them. Right, I see. She didn't like housework, remember? Yeah, that's true. She only she did just... what she needed to do. Yeah, she never saw the point of it. Yeah, just surface cleaning, just to make it look good. <laughs> 
So she probably murdered a lot of people in her room then. Mm -hmm. That seemed to be her MO is that she would have them up to her room and she would give them like a special drink. They were like a special client. Yeah. Yeah. I like you so much. Why don't you come to my room? Go play bridge in my room. Yeah. Trying to make them feel more important than the other guests. Mm -hmm. Not knowing that they're like a lamb to the slaughter. Yep. And then, oh, you're tired now? Why don't you just lay down in my bed? Oh, I just like to sleep on plastic sheets. Mm Mm-hmm. So there were two bedrooms in the upstairs that she used frequently to have people lie down on. And depending on if all of the rooms were full, then sometimes she used her own bed. And I thought, oh, then she slept on that bed afterwards. That's true. Yeah. And even just doing that in your own personal space, she has to be so heartless that that would not haunt her. Mm -hmm. But it would make sense because she's so conniving and calculated that if it's in her room, Nobody else is going to complain of the smell because if she did it in other rooms, then they'd be like, what's going on with this room? And she wouldn't want that room to be held up because that meant that there was less money coming in. Oh, Dorothea's defense was essentially that she might be responsible for burying the bodies in the yard, but she could not be found guilty for killing the victims because you can't exclude natural death. All of these victims were old and decrepit and had a lot of problems. But they weren't all really old and decrepit. No, but amazingly, this defense did better than expected because the deaths were all ruled inconclusive. Right. On July 15, 1993, after eight months of trial, the jury began its deliberations. After the longest jury deliberation in California's history at that time, on August 26, 1993, The Monterey County jury convicted Dorothea on two counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Benjamin Fink and Dorothy Miller and one count of second-degree murder for Leona Carpenter. The trial court declared a mistrial for all the remaining counts, and Dorothea's motion to dismiss these counts was granted. What? Why? On four of the six remaining counts, the jury was hung 11 to 1 on first-degree murder, and so one person had been swayed by her innocent granny routine, and so they couldn't convict her. Oh my goodness. They actually had bought that, yeah, you can't prove that I killed them. But I know that you killed all these other ones, but these ones we can't prove. Yeah, so crazy, right? Connect the dots, honey. In the jury's defense, the instructions that were given to the jury, I went through them, They were super, super complicated. And they were hearing information from nine different cases all at once. Mm. And so the instructions to the jury when they went into their deliberations were super, super lengthy. Right. And we do see that sometimes where prosecutors will choose to only charge someone with a couple of counts, even if they've murdered multiple, just because they have less chance of it being thrown out. Mm -hmm. And this is a good example of that because there was just so much information to process. It was probably completely overwhelming to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you pick your strongest cases that you have the most evidence for and you go with that. Right. And considering her age at the time of the trial, even if she gets only a few life sentences, then she's not going anywhere. Right. And even just do a few. And then once she's charged with those, then you could still try her with the other ones. Mm -hmm. So during the penalty phase of deliberation, the jury again was unable to reach a verdict over the death penalty. They couldn't decide if this not so sweet little old granny should get the death penalty. The trial court declared a mistrial and the prosecution elected not to pursue a retrial of the penalty phase. So on December 10, 1993, a judge sentenced Dorothea to two concurrent life sentences without the possibility of parole for the first-degree murder charges and one concurrent term of 15 years to life for the second-degree murder charge. Dorothea was incarcerated at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. 
In addition to publishing her own cookbook, while in prison, Dorothea enjoyed reading fiction novels by John Grissom and Dan Brown and watched her favorite TV shows. Can you guess which ones were her favorite? (laughs) Probably Murder, She Wrote, The First 48, Dateline, were they all true crime stuff? (laughs) They were. It was CSI, Criminal Minds, and Cold Case. Oh, those are all good ones. Yeah, but she didn't understand why people raised their eyebrows at this. It totally went over her head. (laughs) She attended church services at the prison, but didn't actively participate in any groups because she didn't feel like confessing her sins to anyone. That was between her and God. And until her death on March 27, 2011, she refused to admit any guilt. She remained defiant and self-pitying to the end, claiming that anyone who believes that she was a murderer didn't have all the facts and that they never personally spoke to her. Wow, the audacity. Mm -hmm. That always infuriates me when they deny it right to the very end Mm -hmm. like get over yourself we know you murdered these people well she even compared herself to job in the bible having to face trials that were not earned please which again has me questioning how much of her story had she come to believe it seems her perception of truth in the world around her was very very skewed oh yeah once a victim always a victim in her eyes as for the house where dorothea killed so many people It now has become a little bit of a tourist destination. The current owners are aware of its gruesome history and play into it by putting a mannequin with a pink coat and a gray wig staged with a shovel in the backyard. Get out. Nope. They do for real. Isn't that crazy? That is hilarious. It's not, but that is hilarious. (laughs) They have signs that read trespassers will be drugged and buried in the yard (gasps) and the house is innocent. That is so cheeky. Mm -hmm. But they just got so fed up with people coming. They're like, okay, fine. We'll just play into it. Yep. The house has even been featured on an episode of Ghost Adventures. I was just going to ask, with all those murders taking place, is there any reports of the house being haunted? Yeah, there's lots of reports, actually. I was even thinking that when you're talking about Dorothea killing them all in her own bedroom. Well, some of them in her own bedroom. Like, you're just setting yourself up for some hauntings. It's been featured. Has its own episode on Ghost Adventures. I'm going to have to go watch. (laughs) And that is the case of the storytelling, greedy, manipulative, not-so-sweet dirtbag of a granny, Dorothea Helen Puente. Wow. I learned a lot in that case. I've heard it before, but you definitely brought some new things to the table. I can tell you worked your butt off in research with this one. I just can't get over how confident she was in not getting caught because she doesn't even flee when given the heads up by the unknowing Judy. And that she was just 100% deluded into believing the story she was telling people. Yeah, she was absolutely delusional. And she was never deterred by her time that she spent in jail. No, not at all. And like she was taken in for questioning and sent back to the house. She had a full night to get away. Yeah. And never once fled. She actually gives them permission to dig up the backyard. What was she thinking? Some of the people were only buried a couple of inches under things. Wow. So She had to have known that they were going to find somebody. Yeah, but she waited right till the last minute. I wonder what went on in her brain to decide, okay, now I better leave. Yeah, I don't know. But then again, to just go back to her old ways, Yeah, like not even four days later, she's already trying to pick up another man and go through the fraud thing. Well, it's what she knows, right? This is Mm -hmm. what she does. And she's thinking she's going to get away with it. But she had left with over $3,000 in her purse. And so she had enough means to just give it a week at least. (laughs) It's just so bizarre to me. There's no rest for the wicked, Melissa. No, not at all. (laughs) 
But we hope all of our listeners get a little bit of rest this week. (laughs) Absolutely. And we hope that you'll join us next time. But until then, see ya. Bye. experiencing technical difficulties <laughs> and we are not technical people <laughs> no. because trudy had never stopped drinking drinking throughout dinking her, dinking <laughs> she was dinking That's along with so the abstinence <laughs> <laughs> she would never stop dinking and had 12 children it's true so what happened with the third baby she miscarried it oh right sorry okay don't put that in there <laughs> It's still early. <laughs> That's how I feel when we do it at night. I'm like, what? what? <laughs> I'm not going to continue to comment on that. Her mother had taught her to be kind to, alth- to alcoholics. Her mother had caught her-, caught her. What you trying to say, girl? They're going to say pampers. <laughs> no, not pampers. <laughs> That's to discover if they're old enough or not. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. Never mind. I know yeah. I already told you about that one. You do. Okay. Yeah. 30 other frog crashes. Hold on, I'll wait till you're done, Danny. Sorry. This time in prison, Dorothea knew the roots. The roots. This time in prison, Dorothea knew the root. <laughs> what are roots? <laughs> I don't know. She knew them. Yeah. <laughs> this time in prison, Dorothea know, know the roots. <laughs> I said the O sound too soon. (laughs) Your brain was really trying on that one. Say the O, say the O, say the O. Being grossly misunderstood by the authorities. Can you see how my brain is skipping ahead? I'm already on like authorities. I need to say the TH. I wonder why you're misunderstood. You're hard to understand. But until then. See ya. Bye. Bye. Oh man, I'm so stupid. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs) Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now, but we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com. Oh! 
Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.